1: sequence start. space nuts five, four, three two
0: one three three four five five
1: four three, two, one. space nuts
0: the night report it feels good hello once again and thank you for joining us on space nuts the podcast about space mixed with nuts and joining me as always is Well, okay, this could be difficult. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, because he's no longer part of the Australian Astronomical Observatory because it doesn't exist anymore.
1: Hello, Fred. Good morning, Andrew. How are you? I'm well (laughs) and confused. (laughs) Yeah. About your potential future. My future's looking okay, um, thanks to the fact that I'm now um, a member of staff. Well, I I have been for the last um, eight years. Uh, a member of staff of the Department of Industry, Innovation and Science, uh, which was the parent government body that operated the Australian Astronomical Observatory. So I was in the uh, the AAO, the Astronomical Observatory was a division of the Department of Industry, Innovation and Science. But um, as you and I have spoken about a little bit before, uh, what's happened is that as part of a really big shake up of Uh, optical astronomy or visible light astronomy in Australia. The uh, Australian Astronomical Observatory has been essentially metamorphosed into two separate entities that now belong to the universities or or are now operated by the universities. So our telescopes up in Cunabarbran, the uh, United Kingdom Schmidt Telescope and the Uh, Anglo-Australian telescope, the 3.9 meter, that's the biggest telescope of its kind in Australia. Um, They are now operated by, actually by a consortium of 13 universities, but it's led by the ANU, the Australian National University, which actually operates the site, the Siding Spring Observatory site. So it's a very natural fit. So our staff up there, uh, most of them have become staff members of the ANU. And it's quite interesting because the boss they're working for used to sit in the office next to me (laughs) here in Sydney, uh, a former member of the staff of the Australian Astronomical Observatory and indeed the director of the Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics at Mount Stromlo Observatory, part of the ANU, is a former director of the ANU. So it's a very small world. It is. And everybody kind of knows each other. We know our strengths, we know our weaknesses, uh, we know what buttons not to press and things like that. So our Siding Spring staff have become part of ANU. The staff in Sydney, and that's uh, the um, actually the bulk of the AAO staff members, because we build high-tech astronomical instruments here in Sydney, and the world wants those instruments, so mm. that uh, is also ongoing. They are becoming part of a consortium uh, of universities, three of them actually, Sydney, ANU and Macquarie, and it will be managed by Macquarie University uh, here in Sydney. Uh, And in fact, it will probably still be called the AAO, but that will now stand for Australian Astronomical Optics, and it will be part of the Macquarie University. And uh, just to give you the other side of the coin, what has prompted this reorganisation is a deal that the Australian government has done with the European Southern Observatory, a 10-year strategic partnership which will um, allow Australian astronomers to have access to some of the finest large telescopes in the world on one of the finest observing sites in the world, which they're all very happy about.
0: Well, I said I was confused. I'm now concussed.
1: (laughs) It's It's a complicated thing, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So so the, the observatory has disappeared in terms of its name, but uh, most of its functions are ongoing. Uh, I am, uh, as we said at the beginning, I've neither gone, I haven't gone with either of those universities, but I'm staying with our parent department um, as, as an a, a astronomer to do outreach and communication and advice on, on astronomy issues in government. So you
0: are an astronomer with DIS, which in the yes, uh, right. modern urban vernacular is not a very positive
1: way of describing it. <laughs> um, uh, th- well, that's right. Actually, there was um, one time when it looked as though we were going to be the, the Department of, of uh, Jobs and Industry, which would have been dodgy, but <laughs> but, but that one didn't actually happen. So, so this is what we are, yeah. and, and it's good. <laughs> All right, well... Um, I'm sure it'll
0: change again down the track because uh, it it'll,
1: probably will do. Yeah, Australian government
0: departments of of state and federal ilk do have a habit of changing things quite regularly. Yeah. Now, today, Fred, we're going to be talking about the search for exo moons, space grease. Get your toast ready, and uh, we've got a couple of questions on the same topic: the search for the uh, brothers and sisters of our sun. Uh, from James and Gretchen, so we'll uh, get onto to that very, very soon. Uh, the search for exomoons. We've been looking for exoplanets for over 20 years, and we've found gazillions of them now. But then someone suddenly went, well, hang on, wait a minute. Our planets have got moons, so it stands to reason that those planets out there may have moons, and
1: some of them might be livable. So why don't we have a look? It, indeed, that's right. Actually, it, it, there is a growing um, interest in exomoons. It's, it's not a sudden realization. People have been kind of aware it is of this. To me. <laughs> for a, yeah. Um, but the problem is, and, uh, you know, going to the, the difficult bit to start with, uh, it's hard enough to detect an exoplanet going around another star, um, let alone an exomoon. So the, the best way to detect planets of other stars, because we can't see them. The stars are too far away for us to be able to direct, um, for the most part anyway, to be able to detect the planets directly. There are a few cases where you can do it actually, and especially with these big new telescopes that we've just been talking about. Um, but the way uh, that we normally do it is to look for slight dips, regular dips in the brightness of a star, which reveals the presence of a planet, because the planet is transiting or passing in front of the star, And uh, when that happens, it reduces the light of the parent star by a very small fraction uh, so for example something the size of jupiter passing in front of something the size of the sun would drop the light by one percent mm. uh, it's not not very much but uh, it's enough to be measurable and that's you know that's uh, uh, now very much the stock in trade of astronomers actually some amateur astronomers can do this as well which is fantastic stuff with modern telescopes modern small telescopes they've got the wherewithal to make these measurements of very small dips in brightness so that's how you find exoplanets now if you're looking for exomoons what you're looking for is something even smaller yeah, um, yeah. that's uh, also dimming the light from the parent star and it's dimming it in a peculiar way because whereas a planet will just produce regular dips on a on a regular time scale you know maybe once every 15 days or something like that which mm. would be the, effectively the year of that planet um, a moon is rotating around or revolving around its planet, uh, its parent planet. So it will put in uh, a slight dimin- uh, an even more minute diminishing of the light of the star. But the position that that happens will be varied depending on whereabouts it is in its orbit around the planet. So there's a lot of really detailed stuff to disentangle. Uh, there is one um, example of a, a, a a signal like that, that's to say, um, you know, a, a dipping in the light of a star that may have come from an exomoon. That's um, uh, basically some work that's been done in the United States, uh, I think, at Columbia University. Um, um, actually, it might be a different team, but they're certainly in, in the U.S. that have been involved with this possible exomoon signal. It's It's very... Uh, speculative. We don't actually know that that's what it is, but it sort of points the way towards studies that might reveal um, exomoons uh, around exoplanets. (laughs) Uh, Of course, you could call them extra solar moons as well, but it doesn't (laughs) matter. Um, So what we now have is a study that's come from the University of Queensland, uh, and scientists there have basically looked at the possibility of moons in the habitable zones of planetary systems, that's the Goldilocks zone where it's not too hot and it's not too cold, but just right for liquid water to exist. Um, the idea is that a lot of these planets that are in that zone are actually kind of unsuitable for life. They're, they, you know, they might be fluffy Jupiters or something like that, or hot Jupiters, yeah. um, things that, um, that really are very, very hard to imagine being uh, habitats for living organisms, but they may well have moons that could be more like the rocky planets that we, you know, that we think of here in the solar system, the rocky worlds out there uh, in the depths of the solar system. So that's the bottom line with this story. Uh, exomoons are something to look out for. I think as telescopes get bigger and as more time is spent on this kind of study, I think more people will start looking for exomoons and we will certainly start to find them. They're difficult to find, but we will establish that they are there. And it, and
0: it brings back that, uh, that discussion we've had many times that uh, if our solar system is typical of many other solar systems, it stands to reason that, uh, well, we have found exoplanets, therefore exomoons by default should exist and therefore we should have planets in goldilocks zones and moons within those goldilocks zones and therefore the possibility of livable planets and moons
1: <laughs> yeah that's exactly right but before you get too carried away uh, remember that our own moon uh, is in the goldilocks zone because and it's we just are just a rock and it's just a rock <laughs> not much else going on exactly so,
0: yeah but yeah, there's yeah. so there's so many possibilities the other thing too that's interesting is uh, and and you're certainly well placed to uh, um, speculate more than I am, but um, when astronomers start looking for something purposefully, they generally will find it eventually. And and if you're going to now purposely look for exomoons, the time will come.
1: Yeah, I, absolutely right. I'm I'm confident that that will happen. I mean, um, you know, just look at exoplanets. We 20 years ago, we, we would have thought that the technique that's, that's been most successful in finding these, the, the transit method, looking for the dimming in the star's light, we would have thought that was beyond um, the realms of most technology. But things have changed. Mm-hmm. We now have electronic detectors that are capable of doing this, even on small amateur-sized telescopes. So it's great stuff. And the same will happen with moons. We'll, we'll, we'll get to the bottom of it, as it were. Yes, we will. And um, we'll, we'll certainly
0: talk about that when the time comes, because I don't think it'll be very long. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by TechRadar. This is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years, and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons. And there was just something about their their business model that I particularly liked. And a couple of years down the track, honestly, can't complain. Their interface is very easy to use. Their, their service is second to none. Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do, and they were brilliant. So you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all. It's all about privacy. Uh, do you really want big tech companies, governments and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity? Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Back to the show. Okay, we checked all
1: four systems and in with a go.
0: Space nuts. Now, Fred, uh, it's time to get down and dirty and grease is the word. We are talking about one of the more unusual discoveries in the universe and that is the um, trillions and trillions and trillions of tonnes of greasy matter that they now know exists
1: uh, in the Milky Way. What on earth are we talking about here? (laughs) I like the statistic. Apparently there's enough... In the Milky Way alone, there's enough grease for 40 trillion 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 packs of butter. <laughs> it
0: doesn't say what size packs they are. No, but they... I'm, I'm guessing the average. <laughs> yeah, the average. The
1: average block. <laughs> so what what is this all about? Well, it's it's about um, particular forms of molecules uh, that contain the element carbon. So carbon uh, can form really very complex molecules and of course that's why we are carbon-based life forms because carbon's got the propensity to 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 mix with other atoms and make complex structures that allow all kinds of really sophisticated things to happen such as living and breathing Mm. Um, so carbon is relatively common throughout the universe it's not by any means the most common that's hydrogen um but when it forms molecules, um, apparently, and, and I'm no chemist, Andrew, I should that's my disclaimer at the start of this. I'm not um, I'm not a, an expert in organic chemistry, but there are two main forms, as I understand it, uh, in which molecules of carbon uh, can, sorry, uh, molecule, molecules containing carbon uh, can exist. These two main forms have posh names. Uh, one is called aromatic molecules. And they are sort of dry, like a bit like mothballs. They're sometimes called mothball-like molecules. Um, Whereas the other ones are aliphatic molecules and they are grease-like. So they're greasy, (laughs) greasy molecules, Um, which means, you know, this is what we find in the everyday world. Molecules that have got a high, a a, a very greasy, greasy greasy-like structure are almost certainly aliphatic uh, compounds of carbon. So um, g- g- that is the the bottom line. Now, we know that carbon does exist uh, in uh, with many complex molecules out there in space. We've even seen examples of amino acids and things, which are the precursors of life. Mm. Uh, but a study by the University of New South Wales and actually some colleagues in Turkey uh, has uh, essentially um, done some experiments which are really rather neat. They've... They've tried to uh, synthesize or simulate uh, what um, the conditions might be uh, in which these greasy molecules exist in space. So space is clearly different from the Earth. There's no atmosphere out there. Um, very, very much like a vacuum, although there are there are particles. Um, in In space, we call the inter, interstellar medium, the particles between the stars, uh, and the solar wind, of course is the the wind that 's blowing through space from the sun. so what they did was they took some molecules of of grease, some of these ali, aliphatic compounds, and they put them in an enclosure and basically pumped all the air out so you 've got a, a vacuum um, and looked at the the way these um, these Um, well, I guess particles or or molecules of of grease-like material, uh, the way they behave in conditions that are similar to to outer space. And then what they did was uh, mimicked what happens to starlight when it passes through clouds of these molecules, because that's the key thing for we astronomers. When we're looking for clouds of gas or dust in space, one way to do it is to observe a star that's behind the cloud that you think exists and look at the way the light is absorbed by, uh, by that cloud. The starlight, uh, basically as you spread it out into a spectrum of colors, this rainbow effect with the barcode of information, that information can be imparted uh, or can reveal um, the conditions in the medium between the star and yourself as well as conditions in the atmosphere of the star. So what they've done is they've simulated how that light effect should behave and then had a look for it. And sure enough, we find signs of greasy molecules in the spectra of stars. And that's how we know that there are 10 billion, trillion, trillion tons of greasy matter in the Milky Way. And I'm guessing you can't put it on your toast. Uh, No, you can't, actually, um, because it's too thin. Some have suggested that... You know, if we have interstellar space travel, should we have windscreen wipers on the front of the uh, <laughs> of the spacecraft uh, to clear away the grease as you're flying through it? But of course, we're talking about um, a very rarefied um, atmosphere of grease as well as all the other stuff that's out there. Okay. So it's it's not going to be like that. But it's it's very intriguing work. And um, the the thing is that the, these uh, these molecules, these complex molecules, are eventually going to find their way into new solar systems, and it may well be where some of the grease-like molecules that naturally occur, for example, on the Earth have have come from, that that space space grease that has been collected by the cloud of dust and gas that eventually formed the solar system.
0: Mm, So discovering this and then working out its place in the universe could just put another piece in that 20 gazillion piece jigsaw puzzle (laughs) of the universe that we're trying to unravel.
1: Exactly. That is precisely how astronomers work. Um, It is a 20 gazillion-piece jigsaw puzzle. Uh, So far, we've fitted five pieces together. I think.
0: Yeah, we can't find a corner.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But we get there. We we build up this picture of what the universe is like, and it all comes from little observations like this. Mm.
0: Okay. Well, we'll keep an eye on that one um, as we slip into our next topic here on Space Nuts. Okay, we checked all four systems and in with a go. Space Nets. Now, Fred, as has become the norm with our uh, little program, we try and answer a question or two from the audience uh, in our final segment, and we're going to do that today. And we've got a couple of questions uh, centred around the same topic, something you and I discussed uh, only the other day about the search for the siblings of the sun. Um, So uh, I'll I'll read the questions. Uh, You'll probably want to... um, re-explain what that's all about and then we can try and tackle them. Uh, The first one comes from James in South Australia. I have a question about the search for the siblings of our Sun. If they are ever found, is is it expected that they would be stars of similar mass and brightness to our Sun, or would they be a mix of heavier, brighter stars with some red dwarf stars? Thank you, James. Okay, Uh, and then a question from Gretchen in Los Angeles. Uh, on a recent episode, Fred mentioned that he was working on a project hunting for possible litter mates for our sun, which might have migrated away from our solar system. Could he talk a little about the project and what the research entails? Uh, thank you, Gretchen. Thank you, James. Thank you, ball boys. Um, now, <laughs> so uh, let's, let's sort of reinvestigate this, um, this, this search for the sun's siblings. Yeah.
1: Well, let's start with James's question, because that's a really interesting one. Um, so, uh, Which means yours isn't, Gretchen. Gretchen's is even more interesting.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd say that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you, Gretchen. Um, so you've got to think about the way our sun was formed. It formed in a gas cloud, uh, a cloud of gas and dust, which collapsed uh or the bit of it where the sun is collapsed to form the sun and the planets collapsed under its own gravity but that gas cloud and dust cloud was so big that many other stars probably formed in it at roughly the same time Mm. Uh, 4.6 billion years ago Um, and the question relates to what sort of stars might have formed in that and i think it's um it's a question that doesn't actually have a straightforward answer but um that i think uh, what is happening and, and I, I would defer to my colleagues who are very much better versed on the, you know the the nuances of star formation, uh, but I think the the individual conditions inside one of these gas and dust clouds and the the sort of global conditions on that would dictate the kind of masses of stars that were being formed um, and so uh, the likelihood is that they would be generally speaking similar to the sun and they that there might well be outliers so there might be the odd red dwarf and things among them but generally speaking I think it is true because the conditions are similar throughout the whole gas cloud that you form stars similar to the sun and um, one of the things that um, leads me to to say that is that when you think of Stars which are much more massive than the Sun. These are stars that, you know, with 10 to 100 times the mass of the Sun, they have very short lives. They explode in supernova explosions at the end of those short lives. And they also tend to form more or less uh, at the same time if you have the right conditions. Uh, So in some young what you might call young galaxies we usually call them starburst galaxies they're galaxies that have had some sort of gravitational disturbance uh, that shakes the gas and dust clouds up to the extent that they form very large stars uh, which have uh, supernova explosions at the end of their lives uh, that um, is so that star formation that is heavily influenced by the external conditions you know the, the fact that there is perhaps shock waves passing through the gas clouds or something like that so, you form bigger stars and you get supernovae. So, I think it's the, the conditions in the gas cloud itself that dictate what sort of stars you're going to get, which sen- tends to suggest that the stars uh, which are the siblings or the lost littermates of the sun may be very similar. And that's actually borne out by the one candidate that we have for a sibling to the Sun. There is one star, which is in the Northern Hemisphere constellation of Hercules. It's uh, about 100 light years away, roughly, from Earth. It's actually bright enough to see with a pair of binoculars. Um, It's a similar star to the Sun. It's a little bit bigger, about 15% more massive, um, and and it's slightly hotter. uh, But it is thought to have exactly the same effectively exactly the same chemical composition as the Sun and that is what we're looking for in trying to find these solar siblings. which lets me segue to uh, to Gretchen's question um, uh, because uh, that is what one of the um, one of the um, aims of the project called Galar which I'm involved with uh, at a very small level I have to say I just help with the observing and, and you know, throwing a few comments now and again. Uh, but GALAR is an acronym for Galactic Archaeology with Hermes. Um, and Hermes is the name of an instrument on the Anglo-Australian telescope. Galactic archaeology is doing what um, what I've just hinted at, looking for identical chemical compositions. Speaking among of groups. GALARs, Stars, I just heard yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> that's I think that, perfect I think
0: timing. It could not have been better.
1: <laughs> we, all, we aim to please, you know. We aim yeah. to please.
0: That took a lot of training.
1: <laughs> uh, that's right. <laughs> Lots of um, yeah, breadcrumbs spread out on the on the deck there. No, it's uh, so it, it, what you're looking for with Galar is um, trying to piece together the history of our galaxy by looking at very detail at the chemical compositions of the, the individual stars in the galaxy and that's why galah uh, actually aims to measure for every star you get um, i think it's 23 is the number of different chemical elements that you can measure within the atmosphere of the star and measure what we call the abundance or the amount of those chemicals with very high accuracy and by doing that you you essentially can you know, you can you can compartmentalize a star to say it's got exactly these chemical elements. Therefore, if we find another one the same, it almost certainly has been born in the same dust cloud. It's as accurate as that. And of course, another thing that um, will actually lead to that conclusion is if they have the same motion through our galaxy, uh, because dust clouds forming stars... Uh, they don't sort of explode. What happens is the stars eventually just drift away, but they're drifting away relatively slowly from each other. They're not, they're not charging off in random directions, unless there's been some sort of gravitational interaction between a couple of them and they've got flung out. But you would expect um, the overall drift of these stars within our galaxy to be similar. Mm. So if you find stars that have got, or pairs of stars that have got similar velocities, um, and particularly if they've got identical chemical elements, then you, you're well on the way to saying this would be one of the sun's mates, as it was so eloquently put by Gretchen.
0: Yeah, and, and uh, I still have trouble in my head thinking that, OK, a, a, a sibling of the sun is 100 light years away. Uh, but in real terms, that's not a long way, is it?
1: no it's not exactly and and uh, you know the age of the solar system 4.6 billion years it's long enough for for a star like that to drift to that kind of distance bearing in mind that the galaxy is a hundred thousand light years across mm. uh, so uh, uh, on a much bigger scale so 100 yeah 100 light years is is on our cosmic doorstep um so just to, to tidy up the loose end there it's not just the siblings of the sun that galai is looking for what it's doing is looking um, for almost the building blocks of our own galaxy because we believe that stars um, that have these common motions and common chemical compositions may well have come from uh, not only dust clouds within our own galaxy, but possibly dust clouds of galaxies that are smaller galaxies that our own galaxy has accreted or devoured is a better way to put it. Um, our galaxy is cannibalistic uh, and it eats up smaller galaxies that, uh, you know, stray nearby. And this technique of combining the velocities of these objects with their chemical composition is a really good way of of looking for the debris of galaxies that have been ripped up by our own galaxy.
0: Sounds it, easy, but I suspect it's um, a lot more complicated than that.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty hard uh, task. Um, it's, it's sort of um, complemented, though, now by data from uh, the spacecraft called Gaia. Uh, Gaia is a spacecraft that's also looking at stars, but looking at their motion across the sky Uh, In other words, how they move, you know, right angles to our line of sight. Mm. Whereas what we can pick up with Galar is their movement along the line of sight. When you combine these two things together, you get what we call the space motion, the true motion of a star through the sky. And it's that that really is such a powerful tool uh, to give you uh, hints about the origin of these stars.
0: Okay, so uh, more to come on that. And thank you very much to Gretchen and James for um, sending in their questions. We do appreciate it. We've had a few more. Which we'll get to in coming episodes. Uh, thank you, Fred. As always, um, always great to talk to you. It's a lot of fun.
1: It is a lot of fun, J- uh, Jay James. James. It is a lot of fun. That's Andrew. my brother's middle name, so I guess you would, you know, you <laughs> glanced the target there. I did glance the target. Yeah, I, d- I do remember who you are from time to time. Yeah, so. yeah. My <laughs> wife just forgot when I woke up this morning. So, yeah. that's the way it goes. No, that's uh, we we won't go there, Andrew. Um, I might leave you to discuss that. with <laughs> uh,
0: Well, she's supposed to be editing my new book, and oh, I have to say thanks to Gretchen because we swapped a few messages. Gretchen's involved in publishing, and she's given me some publishing tips for my upcoming science fiction novel. So um, yep. I've got yeah the 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 editor is out making a frittata at the moment, which means she's not editing. <laughs>
1: On the other hand, the frittata might be, you know, of more immediate sustenance than the book is. I suspect it'll have paper in it. But anyway,
0: (laughs) thank you, Fred. Nice to catch up. We'll see you next week. Sounds great. Thanks, Andrew. All the best. That's Fred Watson from, hang on, hang on, hang on. I've got to get this right. The Department of Industry, Innovation and Science, astronomer at large. (laughs) <laughs> and from me, Andrew Dunkley, thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time on Space Nuts. Space
1: Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast.
0: Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor.
1: This has been another quality podcast production from diets.com.